the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dot movie in theater. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Who is this one I see in the pages of God's With hair as white as snow And with gold about his skirt His eyes are flaming fire His feet as brass of gold in brilliant righteousness His voice as mighty waters flow
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Ray and Alexandra have asked me to just share share their heart with you. And I was asking the Lord what scripture passage I should use. Because generally at a wedding, you get a few staples. You know, it's either the wedding at Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2. In fact, he was referring to that, the water being turned to wine. Jesus' first miracle. I'd like to go through that, but no, that's not what the Lord had in mind. And then some people go to uh, Genesis chapter 2, when actually 1 and 2, where God creates the man and, and then creates the woman from his rib and brings her to him. And just read uh, about the all that's going on in heaven in the book of Revelation. And if you go just a few chapters past where he was right to the last chapter, there's a wedding. The Bible almost begins and almost ends with a wedding. It actually begins with creation, and it ends with a brand new creation. Right? But almost at the beginning, there's a wedding. Almost at the end, there's the last wedding, the wedding of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the bride. All right? And I don't get to teach on or preach on any of those. The Lord gave me something else out of Matthew 22. Weddings are important to us, but they're really important in the time of Jesus in Palestine. I mean, if you were in a small town, everybody would come to the wedding. Everybody was expected to participate in and be a part. So weddings were a big event in the town. And so Jesus had several different stories. It was a great storyteller. He had several different stories about weddings. And this one he told, it's important to know when he told it. You remember those of you who have a church background or been to Sunday school at some point in time? There was a point just a little less than a week before his crucifixion where he came down the Mount of Olives on a donkey and people were just ecstatic. They were shouting. They were crying out, Hosanna, blessed, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. And and they were expecting Jesus to be the Messiah. And Jerusalem was packed. Everything was sold out. Every place was full because it was during... Passover. Everyone was converging on Jerusalem for this main event of the year. And so the crowds were shouting, and every place Jesus went, there was a crowd. And he was in the temple, and so they're anticipating something great. He's anticipating something else because he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be crucified. So he tells them this wedding story from Matthew chapter 22. Then Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Parables a story with a message in it. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. God's always thinking in terms of weddings. Okay? He gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling Then he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner. I've I've slain the ox and and the fatted livestock, butchered everything. It's all cooked. It's ready to go. Tell them to come. 
come to my son's wedding feast. They paid no attention to him. They went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. He sent out people to invite people to his son's wedding, and they kill him. So he eliminates that quickly. But then he said to his slaves, the wedding's ready. Those who are invited are not worthy. How come they're not worthy? They self-selected. I'm not going. The wedding's ready. Those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. Didn't matter. King wants you to come. So, the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. I don't know if we quite got enough to fill out there, but imagine a palace where all the space is available. And the king came in to look over the dinner guests. He saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. I'll get back to that in a minute. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind this man hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Or many are invited, it says in the Greek, but few are chosen. It's an interesting story. Because, well, I I go every couple of years and I minister at the Iowa Holiness Association and I stay at a home there where the couple got married right around the same time that Prince Charles and Lady Diana got married. Do you remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember that. The rest of you will have to make do with Prince William and Kate Middleton. But the idea is the same. Big to-do. I mean, carriages and, and... crowns and big cathedrals and all of this. And so they got married around the same time and decided to take their honeymoon uh, in England right after the whole royal shebang. And so the room that I stay in, and sometimes Denise comes to me and we're in this room, you close the door. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Actually, that's almost perfect timing on the, uh, on the sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anyhow. Okay, it's closed. That's fine. Just <laughs> All right. So yeah, you close the door of this room in this inn, and there's this gigantic poster of Prince Charles and Diana. All right? But imagine if you had gotten an invite to that wedding or to, uh, to William and Kate. I mean, you would, have, you would have done whatever you needed to do gotten time off work, put a ticket on the credit card, gone and spiffed up your suit, uh, gotten a special dress just so you could be there. And everything else would have been put on hold. I got an an invitation to the royal wedding. I'm not not just going to be at the wedding. I'm going to be at the feast. I've been invited to the banquet afterwards. Wow. And you'd have bragging rights for the rest of your life. 
See that guy is getting crowned today? I was at his wedding 20 years ago. I got to sit three tables down for, well, okay, 30 tables down, but still, I was there, okay? So that's, that's the idea that Jesus is trying to, uh, to point out here. Now, some of the symbolism should be obvious. Who is the king inviting everybody? That's God the Father. Who is the son for whom the wedding is being held? And, and the royal banquet, that's the second person of the Trinity. That's Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, raised to the right hand of the Father. We're still in God's wedding motif because as far as God's concerned, especially if you read through the book of Revelation, the whole purpose of that was to draw people to this grand wedding feast and for some of them to even be a part of the bride, right? Um, now, I find it really interesting that people are out there basically saying, God the king, God, God the emperor of all the universe is saying, come to my feast, come to my son's feast. And the same excuses that you read in this story that Jesus told, and this is the reason why he told it, they're still coming up. They're unwilling to come. The invitations keep coming. Come to the wedding feast. Some of them were unwilling to come. Some of them, it says, paid no attention. Huh. You know, well, I mean, we, every day is a royal wedding feast. Excuse me? Hello? All right. Um, there are some similar, uh, similar parables that Jesus tells, and there's a bunch of lame excuses. I mean, they're really lame. They're not just a little lame. I don't know if you've ever heard of a group around 1970 called the Medical Mission Sisters, a group of Catholic nuns who were going out to the, the wedding, uh, was going out to Africa to minister in medical missions, and they put together an album. And one of their songs, I can't get the, uh, I can't get the, the music out of my mind. They sing this chorus. I cannot come, I cannot come to the banquet, don't bother me now. I have married a wife, I have bought me a cow, I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Pray have me excused, I cannot come. And that pretty much sums up all the excuses that Jesus gives. They even reject the invitation to the point of violating a cardinal rule which every preacher hopes that you abide by. And that rule is, you ready? Don't shoot the messenger. Well, they did. They killed some of the messengers because they didn't want to acknowledge any relationship that they had with the king. All right? So... We've got scenes in there of judgment. We've got scenes of God saying, you know, here is this freely given invitation. Not only do you reject it, but you violently reject it. And he comes and destroys those who've murdered his servants. But then, go out and get everybody. See, that's the thing I love about God's love. Go out into the highways and byways, whoever they are, the the bad and the good. That's who God's after. 
Oh, I thought I had to go to church. I thought I had to get all my act together and so forth. Well, if you're coming, you do have to repent of your sin. You do have to say, I can do this or I can follow God. But the point is, when you get the call, when you get the call, you don't have to have cleaned up your act. But once you get the call... Hey, you can come to Prince William's wedding. You have to decide, man, am I going to go in these things? Am I going to go in, you know, in holy jeans? Am I going to go in a dirty T-shirt? Or is this worth something? Me changing my wardrobe, me taking a bath. Okay, they don't want to smell you down, you know, down 30 tables away. Is it worth making a change of life to be part of that? All right? The place was filled with guests. Now, there's a little bit of a mystery in this one thing. And it's this fellow who comes in. The king comes in, and he looks over the guests. And he's looking over the guests, and he's looking, and he says, Friend. (laughs) And he is my friend, so that's why I'm picking on him. How is it you came in here without... A wedding gown without, without a special wedding outfit. Now you think, well, maybe the guy was too poor. No, no, no. You see, back in those days, one of the ways that you showed your wealth was in the number of clothes you had hanging in the closet. I mean, way more. I mean, that because clothing was so expensive, it all had to be handmade. It was hand-woven. So everything started out as, as flax or wool, and it all had to be made from scratch. So a king and a royal family would have hundreds, thousands of different outfits. When you came to a royal wedding, you were expected to go into a private room, wash up, doff your old dirty duds, and the king would give you a new garment to walk in with. That designated you as a royal guest and for that day a part of the royal family so this dude just kind of saunters in and goes wow totally cool man like you know i got an invitation to the wedding um excuse me says the king the emperor the father how did you get in here How did you get in here without wearing the royal robe? What's that? I said, my son provided for you. You've got to doff your old life. You have to strip off what's there. You have to be cleaned. And then it's something that Jesus does. And then you walk in righteousness before him, wearing his garment, wearing the garment of the royal family. If you get in, if you try to get in any other way than God's way, God says, I'm sorry. You've been called. You've been invited. How do you get in? It's self-selecting because the invitation is to whosoever. The invitation that God says to his servants, go out and tell all of them to come in. And from that point, every person gets to decide, am I in or not? How do I know? Well, it depends. Are you part of the whosoever? If you fall under the category whosoever, then you can come to the wedding feast. 
other conditions having been made. You say, wait a minute, that's not fair. Well, now, you're talking about fair and God. You know, if your employer says, you're required to do A, B, and C, and you refuse to do B and C, or A and C, or A and B, or all of the above, the employer says, I'm sorry, you apparently would like to work somewhere else, and we're going to facilitate your desire by giving you this beautiful pink engraved slip. Goodbye. And you, don't, you might say, well, that's not fair, but you know what? It's their company. They make the rules, and if you want to work there, you do A, B, and C. Now, if you take that to a celestial level... God makes rules. And God isn't just the employer. God is the creator. You are not on an equal footing. I am not on an equal footing. God, the creator, sets the rules. And you don't say, well, that's not fair. Uh, Excuse me? Let me give you an idea of the scope of this, and then I'll quit. The universe, heaven is not in the universe. The universe is somewhere in heaven. You say, where's God? Is God somewhere in heaven? Uh Uh-uh. The universe is in heaven, and heaven is somewhere in God. Amen. Now, if that doesn't fry your circuits, you're not thinking too deeply. (laughs) Do you remember, who was it? Yuri Gagarin, who went up, the first Russian cosmonaut, and said, well, I'm up here, and I don't see God. Of course, all part of the propaganda thing from the, you know, atheistic Soviet Union at that point in time. Excuse me? You get some people with a sense of who God is. They come around the backside of the moon, these American astronauts. They see they're the first human beings, at least living ones, who knows what the dead see, uh, that are in Christ. They see earth rise. And they say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is your creator calling you. This is him telling you what it is he wants you to be a part of. This is the God of love and of justice saying, whosoever will may come. I'll finish with three verses. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter preaches that. Paul shares that. And they're both quoting from the prophet Joel. Right. Whosoever shall confess me before men, Jesus says, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. You know what he means by confess? That one's mine. That one's mine. Because when she was on earth, when he was on earth, that person said, that's Jesus. He's mine. I belong to him. I confess that. So he confesses before the angels. Whosoever, John says, shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth with him. And we'll finish up in Revelation. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride say, Come! And let him that heareth say, Come! And let those who are thirsty come. And whoever will... Let him take of the water of life freely. You're invited to a royal wedding. There are only just a few conditions to get in, one of which is that you come. 
one of which is that you be whosoever, and one of which is, I want the beauty, the holiness, the righteousness that God can provide me with that washing and with that new garment. And I'm willing to come on the king's condition, not on my own. Are you part of the whosoever? Think about that.
welcome you today. Where two or three gather in his name, there he is. I've been a part of the church all my life. I began sitting in worship services when I was still in a bassinet. The week after I was born, I was in church. I'm talking about the worship service. And I have been in that worship service and others the rest of my life. And as I have grown over the years and come to understand the tremendous value of the church and the family of the church, I have been deeply grieved that I have never been a part of a church that has borne much fruit. And I recognize that the reason for that is that almost everything in America that takes place in the church has come about by the will of a man at the strength of a man. I've always been troubled by the lack of salvation for the lost. As a little boy, I was riding in the car and I would say to my daddy, Do you see that man over there? Yes, Raymond. Why isn't he coming to church? Why is he lost? Hi, welcome. Always it was, Daddy, why won't people who are sinners repent and come to Jesus? And he would say, Raymond, we have to wait. We're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm still waiting for the Holy Spirit. But I've come to a place where I finally have read chapter 15 of the book of John with a different perspective. I want to read it for you. I've always continually gone back to John 15. But now it's my house. It's where I live. He said, John 15, verse 1, I am the vine, the true one, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me not bearing fruit, he cuts it off, and every branch bearing fruit He always prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean by means of the word that I've spoken to you. Well, what word had he spoken to them? To repent, to leave their sin, to be washed in the blood. He was going to die on Calvary. He kept telling them that and they didn't understand it. But after the crucifixion and the resurrection, they understood it. Verse 4, you must remain in union with me and I with you, just as the branch is not able to bear fruit from itself, it may not remain in the vine. So neither can you, if you may not remain in union with me, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. The one remaining in union with me and I with him, this one bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you are not able to do anything. I now know that's absolutely true. At the National Prayer Chapel, we have grown a lot of branches, but we haven't borne fruit. We've been pruned pretty tight. There are some who couldn't be here today because of work, classes, but we've been pruned, tightly pruned. And it's time now for the National Prayer Chapel to bear fruit. And we are going to bear fruit. But we're going to bear fruit in a very specific way. We're going to bear fruit by abiding in the vine in Jesus. Welcome, y'all. Verse 6, if anyone may not remain in union with me, he was thrown out as the branch and was dried up. Are you dried up today? And do you need Jesus today? Those that remain dried up will finally be gathered together, thrown into the fire, and they're burned. Verse 7 says, If you may remain in union with me, and my ramus, that is, my breathed word, may remain in you, you will ask whatever you may desire, and it will happen for you. So God is making a covenant arrangement. If you will stop abiding in the world and in wickedness, and you will begin to abide in me, you ask whatever you want, and I will do it for you. I'm not willing for God to say something like that and not test it. If he's offering that covenant, I'm going to abide in him. I'm going to rest in him. I'm not going to abide in the devil or the works of the devil. I'm not going to abide in the world. I've come to a place where it's time to cut off everything of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Stop being dried out and be filled with the Spirit. That's what I want. So today you're going to be a part of a worship service like you have never before probably participated in. Do you know what the first church was? It's found in the book of Acts. The first church was not a program. We're used to going to church and having a a program, the band and the inspiration and the jokes and the That's not the first New Testament church. The first New Testament church was a prayer meeting. And they kept at it for 10 days. 
and the power of the Holy Spirit came. And that week, 3,000 sinners confessed their sin, were washed and made clean. That's 3,000 men. I'm sure there were another 3,000 women. So at the end of the first week of the New Testament church prayer meeting, they had at least 6,000 people in the church. Within the first month of that prayer meeting, they had over 18,000 people in that New Testament church. Now, I call that church growth. Wouldn't you? No, I'm not prophesying that. But I'm saying to you that today we're going to do what they did in the New Testament church. So we're going to have a time of sharing very briefly. And then we're going to very quickly have an offertory because giving is a key part of worship. And then we're going to form a circle. We're going to pull in close. And we're going to do New Testament church. If you're still walking in sin, today's the day to get free. And we'll pray for you. I can't imagine how any person could want to remain in bondage. It's not fun. It's miserable. Some of you can attest to that. We've got to be free. And Jesus Christ offers us freedom and healing and restoration. He brings love and peace and joy. I can't think of anything I want more than the fullness of love and peace and joy. The price is stop worshiping Satan. Walk clean. This week I've talked to so many people who've been bound in captivity. There's freedom offered. It's instantaneous. It's real. I want to share with you five new understandings that I've come to this week and this month. Number one, conversion is instant. It's not a long process. Conversion is simply where we say, okay, I want a new life. I'm done with sin. I'm finished. Number two, and this was a startling new understanding for me. You cannot grow out of sin. I always thought that I was supposed to love and nurture people and walk with them in their misery. No. Why would I want to walk with somebody in their misery when they can be free? Why would I do that? That's dumb. 
So I've come to a very clear understanding. You cannot grow out of sin. You can only cut it off. Number three, you cannot grow into entire sanctification. It's a supernatural work of God. It's by faith. It is grace. It is not white-knuckling it. It is totally giving myself over to Jesus and saying, Jesus, take me. I'm yours. I'm done with it. And again, you can't grow into this. Number four, you cannot be nurtured or conjoled out of your sin. You're never going to get loved enough. Never can you be loved enough to convince you to leave your sin. It's a decision you make. It's a conscience decision that you make. If you're drinking poison every day and you see yourself dying, it's a decision to stop drinking the poison. I mean, that's not a a hard decision to make, is it? I'm done with that. Number five, that my task is simply to present Jesus and his claims without arguments, and every man and every woman gets to choose what they're going to do because I'm not going to stand before the judgment bar of God for you, and you can't ride my coattails in. This last week, I went to court. I was foolishly speeding and got a ticket. It was 19 miles over the speed limit. Dumb, right? So I had to go before the judge. I didn't have to, but I went because I didn't want to pay the huge fine. I sat in that courtroom, and I watched a man go up He was 24 miles over the speed limit. And the judge said, 30 days in jail, but I'll erase it all and let you spend three days in jail and take a driver's ed course. And the bailiff took this man off to jail for 24 miles over the speed limit. I watched another man come up. You were drunking, you were you were driving under the influence of alcohol. Do you plead guilty or not guilty? Guilty, sir. Thirty days in jail. And before you can restore your license, you have to get a breath analyzer installed in your car. Another man came up his second time with the DWI, 60 days in jail, one year suspended license. We're going to stand before the judge and be responsible for how we have lived our lives, and wasted 
our lives. Unless, and I watched this happen, I watched a man 29 miles per hour over the speed limit go up to the desk before the judge arrived, and he spoke with a prosecuting attorney. And when he was finished speaking to him, the prosecuting attorney said, look, how about if we knock it down to 10 miles over the speed limit? And you pay a fine. Thank you, sir. That was not fair, was it? But Jesus paid the price on Calvary. So I don't get a fine and I don't go to jail. I'm released and I'm set free. Because Jesus paid for me. Now, I have to take a driver's ed course. Eight hours on the computer and a test. Every sinner gets assigned a driver's ed course when he comes to Jesus. And it's going to take time and energy. It means reading this word And the final test comes at the judgment. How do you stand? Is your sin wiped out? Did you pass the test? The offertory message today, is it recording, Brother Ed? Okay. We'll start in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. We've spoken a lot about, especially verses 1 and 2, that when we give everything to Jesus, we're presenting ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. And it's only when we're in this place that we can then know what is the will of God and that we can pray acceptably, because at that point we're led by the Spirit. But I really wanted to hone in on this therefore. So I read back into chapter 11, and we can start in verse 16 of chapter 11. Paul writes, For if the first fruit be holy, he's speaking about the Gentiles, the lump is also holy, speaking about the nation of Israel. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, 
and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So we see that in chapter 12, verse 3, when Paul says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, he's echoing what's said in verse 20 of chapter 11. He says, because of unbelief, they were broken off and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. So like we heard in the welcome today, when we're born again and we receive Jesus, we're grafted in. But then we have to continue. We have to continue in belief and obedience. Otherwise, we'll be cut off. And so Paul is saying not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. So the opposite of being high-minded or being wise in your own conceits is being sober and seeing that it really is a mercy of God for us to be grafted in in the first place. And we continue in his goodness by offering ourselves as this living sacrifice. And this has to be our present experience. So this raises two questions. The first question it raises, have you ever been grafted in? Have you ever really made that decision to give everything to Jesus and to be born again? And have you been grafted into Jesus and received his spirit so that you're living a holy life? And the second question it raises is, if so, are you continuing in God's goodness? Are you continuing to present yourself as a living sacrifice? Or is there something that you've taken back? Did you give something to Jesus and then take it back? Or are you aware that you're not doing your whole duty to Jesus? Are you in disobedience? Are you withholding from him? If you are in this case, we know that you are in danger of being cut off. But by God's mercy, we can repent. So I would encourage you, if this is your position, to repent immediately. Because no amount of good works or giving can substitute just for that simple repentance and returning to Jesus. And then when we're actually in that place of fully offering ourselves to Jesus, that's when our financial gifts are acceptable to him. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with Great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from 
AM 780 WA. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.